Jen, do you know what next month is? Don't say October. <laughs> well, now I don't know what it is. It's spooky oh, season. Yeah. And Halloween and whatnot is coming up. So today's intro of Into the Dark is just, you know, right on the precipice. A little preview yeah. of the dark month. Pre-spooky. Yeah, pre-spooky. Not that this panel is about being spooky, but it is about you know, exploring hero, the the border between hero and anti-heroes and like exploring, quote unquote, the darkness in storytelling, but maybe not going like full dark, depressing. Like what's the borderline there? Yeah, I think it's kind of like, can, can a quote unquote bad character be redeemed? Do we want them to be redeemed? Why do we like them to be bad? Yeah. That kind of thing. It is interesting I feel like we've gone through so many trends, I guess is what I'll say, if like, okay, we need the white hat savior hero person to the total anti-hero. It's been talked about to death, but like the Walter Whites, et cetera, and having them be our leads and who you're seeing most of your story through to then the blurred lines between the two, which is probably way more realistic. I mean, not that shows are need to be or are realistic, but of the complexity of a human character and when or they're human what's that or inhuman or in oh sure they're spooky supernatural but it's interesting to think about because i have always hated this was a different panel we did but the idea of like are is this character likable mm-hmm. like i do think it, i understand where that conversation came from like is an audience going to want to watch this person but like what a silly question in the sense of like i don't need I also feel like it's so rooted in, like, female characters. It, it is. Like, is this character likable? You're talking about a woman. Yeah. You get a lot out of times. Time. A lot know? of times, yes. <laughs> but then, I mean, my comeback for all of that is, like, just watch Succession, which is, like, one of my favorite shows. And none of them are really likable. <laughs> like, you don't really want to be friends with any of these people. So, clearly, it's not a prerequisite. Um, because when you think about even, like, movies and stuff, like... The villain is so much fun to watch. Like, I always think as an actor, like, the villain would be, like, so much fun to play. Mm-hmm. Um, so this panel, at least in hopes, and I know they go into a lot of different directions and preview, which is everybody probably knows already. Uh, it was a micro panel mm-hmm. um, and has Gina Fattori, who's a writer-producer. She's on that. She does a lot of things like Dawson's Creek, but she's on here for Dare Me and Californication and Julie Pleck creator, showrunner, EP, director, all of the things for Vampire Academy, Vampire Diaries, the originals, legacies, the whole, the whole shebang, the the supernatural, as you said, the Uh inhuman. Um, But like, this is what I think it was Julie when we originally asked her to be on this. That was like, I've talked about darkness a lot. And we were like, no, it's not just that, like explore Uh why this is interesting and how they're actually redeemable and how they can kind of be both, which I do think thinking about Julie and like original, like the vampire diaries, like Ian Summerholder was so much fun to watch, or I think you were going to bring this up like Buffy Mm -hmm. at times angel or spike are quote unquote, the bad guys, but they're the ones you're rooting for. And just like the blurred lines of all of it. It's very fascinating. Yeah. She has written some of the all time despicable (laughs) slash lovable characters. So yeah, I mean, 
it's true for Gina. Like I was, especially early seasons, very into Californication. It's interesting. I have not gone back to watch it. I feel like it might fall in my in an entourage category of like, I don't want to watch that anymore. But at a time and a place, like it was this like guy who was pretty terrible and like not learning any lessons. And yet you still wanted to watch him every week for a very long time until there's a few shows that I'm not going to name, but that go on to <laughs> go on too long. Like, yeah, should have been three or four seasons instead of like, I don't know how many this one ended up being, but where it's like, if they don't end up learning or cha- or changing, they don't even have to learn. They don't have to get better, but just changing. You are sort of like, okay, let me off the merry-go-round. Yeah. I will say with a little bit of shade, Emily Gibson came up with the topic of this panel. <laughs> and so I had to review like, what is it? Because it is a lot. It is close to my likable concept. Mm-hmm. Um, so she should be doing this intro and she's not just saying. <laughs> is there anything I mean, we can talk about the panel a little bit because I know you um, were really excited about it as well. But in terms of getting there and that it is September and this is from season 12. Are there any shows you're watching right now that you feel fall into this kind of category or question about your lead people. I mean, the f- first one that kind of, I guess the most current one would probably be a yellow jackets, like sure. where it's, I mean, it's kind of like across the board, except for maybe like Jeff, you know, like, like there's no like book club, all the, <laughs> but all, all the main characters are really like walking this line at some point, whether it's past them or current them. Right. Like, and there's a lot we don't know in between that could change how we feel about them in coming seasons. Um, But I feel like that show is really, really interested in this question. And like, what is an irredeemable act? Like, what crosses a line where you you can no longer root for a character? Like, can, do we, we just... We ate, we, we ate a friend that. and yeah. like we just all keep going like yeah. yeah um i have to say it sort of reminds me of my oc rewatch and like <laughs> how many times are we gonna forgive marissa i don't know i mean don't make I me be a marissa defender right now it's all right you don't need to i, I <laughs> was real behind and learned what happens to her at the end of season three and so like there's no reason to talk about it but i agree with you it's uh i'm currently watching the lioness Mm-hmm. And Zoe Saldana's character is sort of this, like she's got a little bit two lives, like her home life with her girls and her husband. And at first you think she's kind of a harder mother than she is as her daughter has a terrible accident. And she is very torn between these two lives of military kind of like hitman, um, and what she has to do and a moral ambiguity of like, what is, protecting the nation and what is being at home with her family and she is sacrificing when i say she's sacrificing a lot she is she's also sacrificing other people for what she is she and others are deeming the greater good and Mm -hmm. that sometimes it's like is that yours to decide like how are you a good person is that even a question like are you uh wrestling with this or not is it just like a gear that you go into but I think she is an interesting character and she, 
Zoe Saldana is doing a very good job. The other one I thought about was White Lotus. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, ever similarly, everyone on White Lotus is like doing a variety of things that honestly, at times, I think an, an interesting question is also, are their decisions self-motivated? Like, are they selfish decisions just for how they are feeling in the moment? Or do they at least think they're doing something for a greater good, a, a group, someone else? And even if they miss the mark on that and they do something terrible, but like, yeah. is it for themselves or someone else is kind of interesting. It's also interesting how that the question kind of changes when you're looking at a different like <laughs> tax bracket, you know, like a, <laughs> like a succession or, or mm. a white Lotus where it's like, do these people have any adversity in their lives or are they just <laughs> they create to, problems? Because yeah, like, yeah, they, they create their own problems. Whereas like, you know, crash landing in a forest somewhere and being forced into dire circumstances sure. gives it a little bit different perspective. Yeah. Um, Which then makes me think with that lens, I don't know. Lioness, like, I mean, she, they are doing well. Mm. Like she is a high level political operative and her husband's a high level doctor, mm -hmm. but like she has worked her way up like military ranks and is dealing with like global, very high, high, high issues. Yeah. 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 It's less a tax, like I'm creating these problems. Maybe her children and like her home life is a yeah. little bit like, what is that? But she's definitely getting thrown into and having to problem solve things outside of her control that she did not put into place. Yeah. But yes, White Lotus in succession would definitely be a, is this really a problem? <laughs> yeah. So the other sort of interesting thing that Julie and Gina get into is sort of like they are, one talking about their influences and like the first characters they sort of identified in this like morally gray like dark uh space and how like how much our expectations for those characters have changed in the last like couple of decades even from the way we looked at a daemon in the vampire diaries sure. and like the younger generations discovering that show now and having a different reaction to daemon <laughs> being pretty despicable yeah. um, in a way that just didn't register in the same way I think like in 20 are people registering like Jordan Catalano differently I think so <laughs> um, and they, he does come up as well like they, they kind of talk about like it still it still works on them but yeah. like I think it's the I Ethan Hawke in reality by yeah. <laughs> it just it reads differently in 2023 which is really interesting um, and I think would be an interesting sort of entry point maybe for a follow-up version of this next year with with younger writers yeah. who are writing these kinds of shows but are maybe of a slightly different generation. You Which know? makes me wonder who is their Jordan Catalano. Yeah. Because like it's a very, whether it's Damon or Jordan or whatnot, a, I would think that the universal bit is that you grow up and whether it's crushes or something that's influential, there's that teen angsty. I'm like, is the bad boy even still a thing in the current thing that you're. I think it is, but I think they have to be a lot softer. Like, um, which would be, that would be my question on the younger writers. Like who is your yeah. version? Like what is the thing? Cause those, those conversations, whether it is Ethan Hawke in reality bites or Jordan Catalano, et cetera, like, they're universal heartthrobs that 
mean, even I wonder like Riggins. Like, well, you were talking like, about the OC and I was thinking like, I d- actually Ryan is was softer. Ryan, I think Ryan and like, and Riggins, honestly, yeah. I think we're like sort of a kind of a pivot point. Yeah. And like the bad boy idea yeah. where like, it's more this, this young man <laughs> needs some guidance. Yeah. I mean, Ryan, I will say, and anyway, no offense to Riggins, like is very smart. Too. Yeah. He's not, the one that can't read <laughs> like, like ryan is like i mean gets into berkeley and like he tests really high he's just like yeah wrong side of the tracks born into the wrong circumstances has some anger issues for sure for sure does not learn a lot of lessons very quickly yeah <laughs> like, oops i burned a house down uh, like not great but no you know no, no. He, didn't, he didn't mean to um yeah. but yeah i do think that like the 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 bad boys have to be like I think it would be very hard to have a Damon or a Spike now. So here's next extent. year's next year's panel is a dissection of the bad boy, like the, an insider look on bad boys archetype or something or like girls. that. Bad both, yeah. Um, well, with that, we will we will leave it to Gina and Julie to continue to debate and go down lots of wormholes, rabbit holes. This panel, micro panel, is also moderated by Sarah Petrie from the Alamo Draft House. Enjoy. together maybe share some secrets i don't know um thank you guys for being here i'm gonna bring up our wonderful panelists so we've got julie plack and gina fattori give it up hello let you guys get situated So, um, you guys know this is a micro panel, so it's a little shorter than usual. Um, I did hear that we might get to go over time if there's a lot of questions, which maybe there will be. So, start thinking about things you might want to ask. Um, and let's get into it. Hi. Hello. Um, so, this panel is Into the Dark, and I was immediately like, I need to moderate this panel um, <laughs> because I feel like. Uh, all of my friends are just super into villains now. Like, everybody is into villains. Uh, it's like a thing. Um, so I kind of wanted to start, if y'all don't mind, you know, we're gonna be talking about flawed characters, morally gray characters. Can you think of like the first, you know, flawed or, you know, villainous character that you were drawn to? Um, like, m- maybe as a kid or teenager, like in a book or a movie or show, like, who was the first? Lucy Coe on General Hospital. Ooh. She was a librarian, a meek, meek, mousy librarian. And nobody paid her any mind. And then one day we followed her home from work and we watched as she stripped off her mousy librarian uniform and revealed garter belts and thigh-high boots and Lucy Coe was a stripper by night. Oh my God. And that was the introduction to that character who then proceeded to be like the most extraordinary like villainess and soap opera villainess for decades. That's amazing. That, that is amazing. I think <laughs> I, I 
feel like I thought I watched General Hospital, but I don't remember that one. Uh, but I was going to go to a soap place, too, and just say uh, Joan Collins on Dynasty. Ooh, I mean, yeah. go way back to, yeah, I just remember being sucked in by, I had the good fortune to grow up in the Midwest, so all of the, you know, 10 o'clock shows were 9 o'clock shows, so you could really stay up for that last hour, yeah. you could really get your Dynasty and your Dallas and even Hill Street Blues, like, you know, anything in that last, last hour, but yeah, definitely Joan Collins. I was thinking about mine, and I don't know, I think I, like, my mind automatically went, like, kind of sexual, and uh, mine was David Bowie and Labyrinth. Ah. Like, big time. And I don't think I even knew it as a kid. Like, I just thought he was cool in the movie. But, like, looking back, I was definitely attracted to him, you know? Um, so, so, why do you guys think, in general, we're drawn to these characters? Like, you know, obviously, having flaws makes them more interesting. But, like, just speaking to the examples you guys gave, what, what made you so, why were they so compelling to you? I mean, I would say having spent so many years, let's just call it, of my life in rooms, writers' rooms, trying to come up with story, you know, the villain is the person who's usually inciting the story. And, uh, you know, uh, whether that's, you know, Abby Morgan, season two on Dawson's Creek, or, you know, like the level of the villainy is sometimes down here and sometimes it's, you know, way up there. Um, but most of the shows I've always worked on have just been about people and human relations. So the villainy is not, you know, it's not. Up, way up there with war and stuff like that. But, um, but yeah, it's just, it's the spark that creates the story. It's true, they're the conflict provider. It's an organic, built-in plot mechanism. Um, I remember, we're, Gina, you and I are like, and then in the 90s, um, but, but in the 90s, or the 80s even, no, the 90s, I remember like Melrose Place, the first Melrose Place started, and everyone's like, ho-hum, yeah, yeah. And then all of a sudden, there's Heather Locklear's on Melrose Place being a Lucy Coe. She's being a, you know, a biatch. And, and, and she's shaking things up, and she's backstabbing, and she's, and you know, everyone's like, hmm, what's this show? And then Kimberly. Kimberly. Kimberly shows up and is like, suddenly this diabolical like plot twist villain and the show exploded and it is true when you sit around writing trying to write nice you know scenes about nice people being nice to each other it's really hard nobody really cares sadly cuz i mean that's jason kadams has made a whole career out of it and he does it very well but he's like the only one that's fair i worked on parenthood like <laughs> no villains no villains on parenthood that's what we love about it um, well, and then when it, when it comes to y'all's own work, um, you know, how do you, because I think the other thing is you have to kind of tread a line, right? Because they can't just be like utter garbage humans. Like there has to be something that makes people like interested in them. Um, otherwise it's like, you can't explain the relationships they have on shows because who would want to be with like this trash person, you know? So like, how do you guys, and maybe we can talk some examples um, of different characters that you've worked on or been a part of. So I modeled every, I, every villain that I have, I, like, I reach back into my soap opera roots um, because for me, the villain is just the beginning of an, a journey. You know, it's the arc. Uh, 
there's a journey of what made the person the villain, which is the backstory, and then there's the beginning of the journey where the villain comes in to be villainous, and then in the way I like to tell stories, that villain wants something that is very near, dear, and emotional to them, and are willing to sort of flatten anyone around them to get it, um, usually with a quippy one-liner and smoldery blue eyes, right? So, um, like, make no mistake, the villain must be very good-looking in all... Definitely. But... Um, I, in my writer's rooms, I tell writers, I never want the villain to just be the villain. I want the villain to be the hero of their own story. And so that uh, has a grounding um, quality to it that makes that villain rootable in their own way because they are just trying to get what it is that is near and important to them. I also, in my stuff I do, I try to make the rule, I never want to cut to a villain who's like, I call it villain POV. I never want to like cut to the villain POV where they're just like, and then tomorrow we'll get those meddling kids. You know, I just, and, and other like, you know, a lot of shows do do that. And I'm always like, oh, that's fun. You know, like, but I don't like to give a POV to a villain unless that POV is illuminating. It's peeling back a layer of villain's character and villain's wants. Um, that is more than just about power. You know, it's like, I want my mom to love me. You know, I want my, you know, girlfriends to come back to me, like that kind of thing. So that's just the little tricks that I have, way of making the villain a rootable character in their own right. Yeah, you know, I had actually, so right before COVID, I got the chance to do my own show, which was called Dare Me. And I, Oh, Oop, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> so I came together with the novelist, Megan Abbott, and she had written the book. And um, Megan, shout out to Megan, because I think her latest novel just came out on Tuesday. Um, and uh, But all of her novels, and I know personally, she's obsessed with film noir. So at the heart of the book, Dare Me, and at the show was this classic femme fatale. And uh, so it was really fun to write that character and embrace that whole history of that, at that, of that archetype. And even when we were doing the pilot, um, the amazing director of my pilot, Steph Green, we just, she just kept the it's smallest piece of direction ever in the history, but it was just Willa who played the coach. We just had to keep telling her constantly not to smile. And for a woman to not smile, it's like pulling out a gun. You know, like it's just like it creates in people this sense of like, what is happening here? Do I like her? Do I not like her? And I mean, it was such an interesting journey to go on. Um, you know, we obviously Megan had created the character in the book and and the series was very true to the book, but just seeing people's reactions, I mean, she's having an affair and people are always like, what's wrong with her husband that she did this? And we'd be like, it's something in her that's making her do this. It doesn't matter what he's doing or who he is as a person. He's his own character. So it was just an amazing creative journey. It was really great to be able to dig in with, because those are the, I mean, the characters, frankly, that are right on that line, like famously Tony Soprano and, um, oh my God, this is embarrassing. The drug dealer, Vince Gilligan. Walter White. <laughs> they got you. They got you. Okay, I need coffee is, is true. I mean, I think, and you, you know, you saying the, like, her not smiling. It's like, that is such a small detail that has such an impact. Like, I mean, and I, I wouldn't have, th obviously I wouldn't have thought of it until right. you just said it, but it's like, 
Oh yeah, it's, that's chilling. It's it's crazy. There's also a scene we ultimately left in the pilot, but um, it wasn't moving the story forward hugely. As I'm looking at Julie, because we all know sometimes those scenes don't make it in. But um, you know, very moody and interesting scene where like you know, it's a coach meeting a parent of one of the girls on the squad. And it's just two women kind of facing off, being polite, but you know, underneath the politeness is not good feeling. <laughs> and yeah. that scene was another one that just provoked all these really interesting reactions in people who were, they wanted to be told whether she was a villain or not. And the journey of the show, which we only got to make 10 episodes of, was to stay in the point of view of the character um, who actually perceived her as sort of a hero and an intriguing um, older woman to emulate and the character who perceived her as a villain. So the whole 10 episodes were sort of structured to keep the viewer on thinking one thing till we got to the end of the season one when you would reevaluate that. And we never got to do season two. So buy boo, the book. Boo. Buy the book exactly. is the... Yeah. Well, and on that note, so I think, you know, there's characters that are, you know, people are going to come in and, and think, oh, this is a, a nice person and then slowly find out that they're maybe not so nice. But then there's characters like, I don't know, vampires that you're like gonna be like, oh no, like you're a demon, literally. Um, and then it starts to become like, oh, but they have a heart of gold. Like, so let's talk about navigating the opposite where it's like you start with a character who is very clearly like the villain and then making him or her just more, you know, relatable or empathetic, or sympathetic. Um, let's talk about that. Yeah, well, so. Scotty Baldwin on General Hospital <laughs> in the 80s was a prick. Yeah. There was nothing redeemable about him. He was not a good guy. He was always getting in it with Luke and Laura. He was just a shitty, shitty villain. And then, you know, as time went on, they gave Scotty Baldwin this girlfriend named Dominique. And Dominique was an angel, and she was lovely. And nobody understood why she liked him, but she saw something in him, and it warmed him up. And then Dominique got a brain tumor. Oh, no. And Dominique died. <gasps> and Scotty Baldwin wept over her body and was at her side and was like, you know, basically like, you, you complete me, you have made me a better man. And Scotty Baldwin, from that day forward, went on and was a lovable villain slash hero because he had felt that human pain. And we got to see him experience love and be loved and to find someone to believe in him. And then he wanted to live up to that belief. And then he, you know, and then he lost her, but he, it transformed him. And I remember watching that and sobbing and sobbing and everything I do, I always go back to that, you know, which is, yes, there are psychopaths and those are really fun to watch. I don't know how to write a psychopath because I don't know how to get inside their head. I don't understand what makes them tick, right? So I like to write sociopathic uh, bad boys who are not actual sociopaths or psychopaths, but just <laughs> emulate that behavior <laughs> in a lot of ways. Um, but I will say it's getting harder and harder, right? Um, for a lot of reasons. One, when you're young, the bad boy, and you're young, sorry, in my generation, when you're young in my generation, 
the bad boy with the heart of gold is the thing. You know, it's it maybe it comes from the James Dean, the next you know generations following James Dean, the bad boy in the leather jacket, the one who's got the pain. Luke Perry, Dylan McKay, you know, like the in literature, you know, and and all of it. Um, but therapy and life experience tells you over time that that guy doesn't. Yep. He doesn't get yep. better. You don't change him. He doesn't, he can't be changed. And, and that, in fact, he's actually broken yeah. and that you are not going to heal him. And if you do heal him in small ways, it's because you have given your whole being yeah. into his happiness and you now are a broken shell of yourself. So, <laughs> so once reality sets in as a storyteller, it's really hard to write that as an aspirational story. So I'm having a harder time for that one reason, coming up with those kinds of characters and believing in those kinds of characters, which is why the genre is so nice, the vampire genre specifically, because they can be murderous and diabolical because they are predators and they, that is like their food chain, right? But the other is, the post post me too uh, generationally speaking like young folks don't like that like they're like fuck that guy he sucks why would you like him i have every year i have a new generation of 12 year olds that comes up to me and talks about how much they love the vampire diaries because it just keeps living on and on and on and on and it's amazing you know it's timeless and and that has been the greatest you know sort of legacy of that show is just people tune in every year and love it, no matter, even though it's 10 now, 15 years old. But what I've noticed now with some of the younger viewers is they're like, Damon's a dick. <laughs> like, I mean, they're not wrong. Damon's a, Damon's a date rapist, you know? Damon's like, and I'm like, yeah, he is. <laughs> and everybody loved it back then, loved it in a way that was like confounding how much they loved it because he is a fucking asshole, right? Um, so it's just, you know, then the vampire, you know, uh, genre itself is hard to write right now because it's it, inherently, it goes against all rules of consent and it's about toxic masculinity and a lot of things, right? So times have changed and it's harder. So you write, you would get, you end up writing a bunch of unlikable assholes and people love that. The white lotuses and the successions and the, you know, but. That's a good point though. Um, because I think in those shows. Well, White Lotus, there's obviously some romance, and I guess in succession, but like a lot of those are, are more like transactional relationships where there is sort of, if it's like two terrible people in a relationship or having some kind of inter interaction, they, they both suck. So you're like... Yeah, they both suck, so therefore it's fun to watch like, two shitty people be shitty yeah. to each other. I think about succession all That's the time. Maybe Shiv and Tom. Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. But like succession to me, succession to me worked... Um, for me, emotionally, well, the reason I liked watching it for all those years was because it was the originals, right? It was a father, an abusive legacy, and his children who grew up under that sort of, you know, that, that in that home of abuse. But there's that one moment where the dad gets out of the swimming pool, like season two, and there's scars all over his back. And you're like, hmm, you know, I bet he had an abusive father too. And, you know, and I bet that his father before him had somebody who wronged him. So it gave a context to all of their shittiness because they were all, look at me trying to fix the bad boy. <laughs> can't do it. I've, can't do I've it. always, God damn. 
Um, it's, it's helpful if you're just too lazy to try and fix the bad boy. I found yeah. that's worked for me. <laughs> Better than therapy, almost. Just laziness. Yeah. But I could, I could grasp onto that family in succession because I could see how broken they were, and therefore there was a pathos connected. And up until almost the very end, and then it was the, the, near the very end when I realized, oh, no, they're broken beyond repair, and that made it harder for me to feel good about it, you know? Um, and I think that that's what's interesting, is like if you watch shitty people be shitty to each other, that's comedy. That's entertaining, you know, um, which is, I think, where we are right now in this little, you know, television zeitgeist. We'll call it the White Lotus era. Yeah. No, it's true, but it's also like, you know, so, yeah, where, where do we go from there, though? Because I agree with you, like, it's, you know, I'm still of, like, the, you know, Jordan Catalano era where, like, <laughs> what a, what? Like, dude couldn't read. He was mistreated Angela, still obsessed with him. I know. Um, why? Why, are, why were we like that? What is wrong with us? Because same. <laughs> and I mean, I'm glad, like, these younger generations are coming up to you and saying, like, like calling this out. But it's like, so, you know, it'd be interesting, like, next year to come back and have a panel with, like, a younger person who can say, like, this is what I'm attracted to and this is what I find interesting. Because in my mind, there's a huge difference between what I find hot in fiction and what I would find hot in real life. Like... <laughs> Totally. Yeah. Like, I've been reading Colleen Hoover because everybody's reading oh Colleen Hoover. Oh, and I've only I'm read like, one. I've only read one. You know, the, what's interesting about... What's the one that they're making the movie out of with Blake Lively? It, it, ends with it ends with us, right? She found a way to get all of the titillating sexiness out of that bad boy, but then ultimately deliver the accountability of that bad boy you know, which is like, yeah, there's no such thing as the bad boy with the heart of gold who's going to love you forever. And like, you know, you're, you're, he's going to end up abusing you and you're going to end up in an abusive relationship, you know? So like you got sort of the sexy draw of the daemon mixed with the reality of what that toxicity is really like. And I think that, I think that maybe that, I could say that maybe that's why that book is as successful as it is because you got the thrill and the reality all kind of in the same package, maybe. I mean, I actually I haven't read I haven't read her yet, but I might need to pull out my like Jane Austen Society membership card here, yeah. and I mean, because obviously like this stuff does go so far back, and and I'm a huge fan of the movie for Bridget Jones's Diary, which. Like, I mean, I'm a huge fan of the 95 Pride and Prejudice, but that movie, um, actually, because we all know who Hugh Grant is <laughs> and we all know what he brings to that role, like, that is, like, just one of the best villains ever, I think, in, in, um, in literature and also in, in that, as personified by Hugh Grant in that movie. But, in the, and that's the subtlety of it. Like, in Pride and Prejudice, the villain winds up being your brother-in-law <laughs> through, you know, a sequence of events, not to spoil it, for anyone okay. but um, I think it's fine to spoil Pride and Prejudice but yeah like I think that you know the most exciting things are right on that line and it is interesting that we've lived through this era of and I don't even want to speak to like superhero kinds of stuff because I've never written that but obviously the idea of black and white and good and evil being baked into like that living through an era in world history where that those stories have been super appealing to people and um, at other points you know, different things rise to the the fore. Of, and, like, I think, you know, obviously, 
I haven't watched this either, but I did watch the season one of Ted Lasso, and we all felt like we want to watch something. I, not even speaking generally, I wanted to watch something in that moment that um, would be uh, really heartwarming and uh, and not about an antihero. And um, and I've always loved those kinds of stories anyway. I, yeah. And they took Rebecca and almost instantly were like, mm, this doesn't feel right. You're, this, you're right. You know, this evil, you know, boss lady doesn't feel right. And right. they warmed her up and there was no villain. I mean, Rupert was sort of Which a villain, is, but that's r- it. Right, know? but and that also speaks... Yeah, yeah and when we're actually making shows, which is different from with a book, um, sometimes it's just an actor has a certain spark, magic, whatever it is, and you can't know that when you're first putting it down on the page. So you have to take that journey with that actor, see where it goes. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it's just, before we go to the questions for the audience, like just thinking about Rupert, Giles, and Buffy, and then yeah. being the villain in Ted Lasso and like how good he is at both. Yep. Like, yep. I was like, I never thought I could hate you, dude, but I hate you. Yeah. But I love you. Um, all right. Who has a question? Yes. Which comes first? Oh. The villain. Oh, sorry. <laughs> she had her hand up, so I, that's sorry. Yes. Um, I just was wondering from a writer's perspective, what are the reasons that bad characters resonate so much with audiences? Because we've all met them. We've met various degrees of the baddies. And one of the reasons we like seeing baddies is we want to know how it plays out, how the good guys deal with the baddies. It's just from a psychological point of view. Because there has to be a reason why we all love bad characters. I'm going to repeat it real quick. So the question, in case you couldn't hear, was just, you know, basically, do these flawed characters resonate because we we know flawed people in our in our lives? I think is I think I I think I got it. Yeah, I think I'm, I'm trying to think about why I like those kinds of characters, and it's it's because I want to understand what makes them tick. And so, yeah, you can apply that to humanity, which is like, why do bad people do bad things? What is it in their minds that makes that okay? And it, it gives you some sense of power of understanding. So, it, it, yeah, there's an interesting exploration there. Because all I want to do is figure out what makes this person tick. Why are they acting this way? And when I can't, I feel very powerless so when I write villains, I personally try to write them with that kind of want, need, et cetera, so that I can answer those questions. And then other people just like to like embody the villains without answering those questions because everybody, you, community building is, comes out of having a common enemy. Oh, good point. Gina, did you have anything to add? Or? You don't have to. No. <laughs> Other questions? Yes, in the back. Uh, any advice for like, when you're writing a villain that is not only like just kind of a bad person you would want to continue, I don't know, a project with them, <laughs> but like a morally repugnant character that you go too far, which is like, I don't need this person, or like any, you know, spread that um, needle of uh, believability, not necessarily likability, but um, yeah, they really are truly. My only advice would be avoid tropes because 
the the thin line that exists between a really dynamic true villain and a mustache twirling camp fast it's a it's a very thin <laughs> um so if you want to have that kind of character less is more i think um don't try to fall into the, like oh do they have the zippy one liner or you know or do they deliver a monologue about their agenda and why they're going to take over the world. Like, avoid all of those tropes. That seems like amazing advice. And uh, I don't take advice from me because I'm the person who, like, 10 years ago, they sent me that book, You, and I was like, serial killer? <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, wrong. I was wrong, but whatever. But it's pinned badly as a serial killer, so that's... Yeah, yeah I did not difference. have the vision. I lacked the vision. I can't believe we didn't even talk about you. That is a... By the way, wow. I'm like, that is the perfect example of I all mean, of this. Like, I, why do we like Joe? Yeah. Like, I had the experience of, like, you know, going home for Christmas and yeah. seeing my nieces obsessed with you. And, you know, not that they need to watch Dawson's Creek or Gilmore Girls, but, like, I was like, guys, what's the show? And then I was like, oh, yes. So, I, I don't know. I think it's fascinating. Totally fascinating. Well, I, I mean, it was, it was so funny when... Pin Badgley had to basically be like, guys, don't, like, k killers are bad. Like, don't, please don't, like, romanticize. And it's like, well, dude, you did it. I'm sorry. I blame you. Um, but yeah, it's, I can't believe yeah, this. I think he's meta. I think that's why, I think that's why we love him is because he's meta, you know? It's. You're right. It's not the, like, what you said about tropes. Like, it yeah. avoids. And I mean, we are, we're getting his POV, like speaking to what you were saying earlier, and that actually helps because he's, he's sort of rationalizing what he does, but also kind of admitting mm -hmm. the bad stuff that he's doing. Um, and so I think it's crucial to be in his head. Otherwise you'd be like, oh yeah, this guy's psycho. Like, yeah. stay away. But I still think he's psycho, but I, st I like him. I like him. I don't want him to die. Yeah. Um, other questions? Yes. Made me think of something. You know, back in the 1950s, or, I was just in for a little bit, but yeah, I saw a weird one. You have shows like, you know, The Lone Rangers, this little kid who was black and white, and you have the good guy and the bad guy, something you never wanted to be. But now, exploring these darker parts, everybody's gray, you feel that that in some way influences society now. It gives people permission to say, well, now I can go down this route and make the national news, you know, for a school shooting or whatever. As opposed to, clearly, we don't want to go this way, we want to go this way. Now it's like, well, you know, people love this guy even though he's a serial color white. And I'm inclined to be a serial you know, to do bad things too, so there's nothing wrong with it. you feeling responsibility or is there kind of a line you want? I, you know, it's, it's funny. I would actually say that almost the reverse is true in that society has impacted the way that we tell those stories, right? So you no longer can have a clear black and white, literally or metaphorically, division between... Uh, the good guy and the bad guy. You know, you can't have the Western where the indigenous people are the bad guys. You can't have, you know, it used to be the old trope of the the Russians or the communists or the 
um, or the gangsters or whatever, you know, like that's just none of that works in that way anymore because it's a, forgive me, you know, it's a patriarchal model that that isn't that doesn't reflect the way that people in society today want to see other people, right? Um, so I think society's shifts then feed the choices that storytellers make and then the choices that storytellers make are reflected back into society and in a, when it's working for the powers of good you end up with things like gay marriage because modern family and will and grace had such a cultural impact on a, a specifically american society that suddenly it opened up hearts and minds and it led us to a place where we now you know can celebrate that and i think that you can end up realizing that, for example, decades of putting, say, cops, hard-hitting, break-the-rules cops uh, in the hero role maybe fed into a societal issue where cops had too much power that they weren't using in the right way, and then you do have to take accountability for that as a, as a storyteller. Now, I'm not going to get into does writing a sexy serial killer makes someone want to go shoot up a school. I hope not. Um, and I, you know, that's a, probably a conversation that needs a lot more data to back it up. Um, but yeah, I mean, we, we set out to tell stories, hopefully, that teach people how to do good things in the world in their own small ways. Uh, and, and yet we also take our same cues from, you know, society telling us what they're willing to, to hear and not hear. Yeah, well said. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> um, so I wanted to see, like, in your writing process, when you're writing these characters, um, and not necessarily, like, one of the main characters who you know is going to need a redemption arc, so, like, less a Damon more an Enzo, we're talking Vampire <laughs> Diaries. Um, at what point in the development process of that character are you thinking about what that redeem redeemable quality would be? Or are you just kind of setting them out in the world and then the story starts unfolding and you're like, wait a minute, we need to follow this. How can we redeem that? Like what, is it chicken-egg situation? Yeah, it's a little chicken-egg. Like, just specifically for Vampire Diaries. Like, um, you have a, an Elijah who was meant to be a heavy. He was meant to come in for a couple episodes, be a heavy, be a, you know make things crazy, kill a few people, be on his merry way. <laughs> the actor was extraordinary and embodied the character in such a way that you couldn't imagine the show going on without him. And so suddenly he's Klaus's brother and he is the codependent bestie of a deeply, deeply damaged, abused kid, right? <laughs> so in that case, the chicken and the egg was write a disposable heavy that then the actor embodied so well that it, he had to have an arc. Um, Kai Parker was one of the only psychopathic characters I've ever shepherded, and that was the fun of it, is people kept looking for ways to humanize him and kept looking for ways to understand why he was such a jerk and why he was so murdery and kept looking for reasons to feel sorry for him, and the answer was no, there are no reasons. He is a psychopath. He's just really funny, you know? Um, so, yeah. <laughs> How about you, Gina? <laughs> um, 
Oh my God, that was perfect. No, I mean, it's like, well, what you said about comedy earlier was so true. I mean, I think the truth about succession is that it's a comedy. Like the characters do not change. They just remain who they are as much as Frasier and his dad arguing about the chair. And um, there is something about the that that makes it feel, I guess, sort of comforting. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm so mad, but we have to wrap up. Oh, There's dang. a villain over there. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> just, you're doing your job. Um, thank you all so much. Thank, thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you. And enjoy the rest of the festival. ATX, all right. You have been listening to the TV Campfire Podcast, hosted by ATX TV co-founders Emily Gibson and Caitlin McFarlane, and produced by Jennifer Morgan. This conversation was recorded live at ATX TV Festival Season 12 in Austin, Texas, between June 1st and 4th, 2023. For more information on the festival and becoming an ATX TV member, follow us at ATX Festival or visit atxfestival.com.